Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press on the road this week. So the sound is not going to be quite as good as studio quality, but hopefully it comes across just fine. This week on the show, my good friend and recurring guest, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today, joins me to talk about Urban Meyer's awful tenure in the NFL. How could he be so good in college and so bad at this? Also, can NIL or anything really help combat the clustering of elite talent in college football, which leads to very little parity at the top? We'll also talk about the difference between college basketball and college football and why college basketball, why its flaws in some ways help it at this time of the year become a more compelling product. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25, the digits 25, mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is recurring guest and my good friend, Paul Meyerberg, USA Today's tremendous national college football writer and basketball, like, like me last week, Paul turned into a basketball writer. How'd you like the hoops? Um, here's the thing. Okay. So college football and college basketball exist on the same level of competition, right? It's 18 to 22, 23 old guys, unless you're BYU, you're 28, 29. It's the same, it's the same group of young men, right? Nonetheless, to me, college basketball is such an inferior product compared to what you see on a Tuesday night between the Grizzlies and the Jazz. Yeah. I've got a hard time putting my heart and soul into it. Not to mention the fact that I just, I just think that it's not inventive enough. What college football lacks for like the level of ability and consistency of the NFL, they make up for more so and then some with like the history of the games, history of the rivalries, um, and inventiveness, like quirkiness. I don't see that in college basketball. I just see an inferior product. That's interesting. Okay, well, I wasn't necessarily planning on us talking about this that much, but let's just stay here for a second because um, – I, I have a couple of different theories on that. I think the, the nature of football makes it harder to discern it is inferior um, just because there are 22 players on the field, right? You, you're not going to know, though I will, I, and I say this a lot, one of the things that makes college football, I think it's so fun and more fun than the NFL is the fact that it is inferior in, in a way that makes it unpredictable, right? Guys just make, there are mistakes made in college football that are just mind numbing, right? I mean, <laughs> because they're 18 to 22 year old kids and, and it's a complicated game where lots of people have to be in the right place at the right time and do specific things. And when one or two of those people don't, things can really blow up. So I think that the fact that it's not as good a product or it's not played at as high a level actually increases the excitement. Whereas with college basketball, I think it can increase the excitement because the game can, again, there is a little bit of that. You never really know what's going to happen. Guys do like not things that are a little, a little like, wow, like that's not a smart play. So you get some of that in college basketball, 
and I do, you know, and the product in the tournament, I think is super exciting because it's always very competitive, right? We can talk about that too, how the two sports have kind of go, gone in different directions. But I do think the nature of football leads to the idea that the fact that it's not as good can some ways make it more exciting and it's harder to spot the differences. Yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right. And also think that in college basketball, when you do get the one transcendent player, it puts even more into a starker contrast, just how like the other nine guys are, are going to go work at enterprise in six months. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? But it's true. Like, for example, at the end of the NBA benches, I mean, even the really good players in college basketball, some of them are, you know, probably not even going to be starters. Even if they get to the NBA, they're going to be role players and things like that. Right. Like, so I was watching Duke over the weekend in Greenville and there are certain players on Duke that you see move and it's kind of like being at a Knicks game. You know, if we, I don't remember last time I was at a Knicks game, but at least being at an NBA game, seeing that movement, seeing the athleticism of those guys. And then you look at the bunch of 60 or seniors who on their third school at Cal State Fullerton and you're like, well, okay, like this is not going to go that well for them. And I think that you see that a little bit less because it can be a little bit more hidden when it's 11 on 11 in football. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. And, but also like, there's no one in college basketball anymore. Who's doing it. Like, like Hank gathers and, and Bo Kimball. Did I make that name? Yeah. Up? No, Bo no, Kimball, right? Bo Kimball. Yeah, no, there's, I guess you're right. In, there's the no Loyola Marymount anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no, um, there's no, there's no pushing the envelope. So I think that's an issue for college basketball to truth be told. I know they exist. I've never really met someone who's like, I'm a college basketball guy. And if I did, I would probably be a little bit frightened of that person um, because that's weird. I mean, it's just weird. Like you, you hang your sports hat on college basketball. I mean, it's, what are you doing? It's the people we see who cover it. Like they are very much into it, but you're right. Like the normal fan fans, like just out in the wild, not with press credentials. I don't know very many of those people now, to be fair, we have never lived in college basketball country and we don't, our jobs don't take us to college basketball country that often. Right. If we, if we grew up in North Carolina, maybe that would be different. If we grew up in Indiana and spent more time in Indiana, maybe that would be different. Well, we did grow up in in New York area. So like there is a basketball background here. This is a basketball city, um, but it's not a college basketball city. Yeah. But you're right. Like, so what you're looking at is a very small subset of college sports fans who identify with college basketball first instead of being like, oh, a uh, war eagle. And I also will root for them beginning in February when I realize that they're good and mm-hmm. they can make a run at the final four. Right. Um, right. So I, I feel like I saw a lot of those people in Greenville, like a lot of those Auburn fans. Mm-hmm. There's no Auburn fan. Well, no Auburn fans in their right mind, but no Auburn fan who's even <laughs> less in their right mind in the first place is like, I go basketball first and then I do swimming and then I do football. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just think that the, the pure, um, the distilled version of college sports is, is represented better in college football than in college basketball. College basketball is a bridge. It's a, it's like a bridge, you know, it like will walk you. It'll walk you to baseball season for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then baseball season will, will slowly, like just drag its feet until August and September till football season. <laughs> so th- there is the interesting thing about college basketball compared to college football though. And I think this is where it's been, it's a plus. This is where college basketball wins is that it does seem like everything 
that has changed in college. All the dynamics of college basketball have made it a more competitive game. Now, it might not be as good a game, and it means that the, the there are fewer elite teams and that it means that Kentucky can lose to St. Peter's. We've had, I think, three 15 seeds win in the last like four or five years. Um, and that used to be, you know, obviously it wasn't one sixteen, but we've seen, so like we've seen these upsets become more common. And I think that is good for college basketball. Now, listen, college basketball's regular season is, it's never going to be like they're, they're, they're we've been talking, they've been talking about trying to do things to college basketball's regular season to, to up the interest. And frankly, it's probably never going to happen. Um, but the tournament is amazing. And one of the reasons why it seems to even get more amazing every year or, or it just never fails to deliver is because of the, the increased parity. And it's just so interesting how in football, we can't figure out anything to stop these elite teams from seemingly becoming more and more elite and sort of throwing everything out of whack. But in basketball, there are fewer elite teams and there's even more parity, probably more parity than ever before. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about college football is that we can't even, like, even when we decide, like, which teams are elite, or even when we have a small group of elite teams, we can't even decipher in terms of a playoff how we want to decide just a small elite group. How do we decipher a national championship with just an elite group of teams? We can't even get to that point as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's obviously a pipe. I mean, not just a pipe dream. It's more like a Twitter joke to say, hey, let's, let's look at my 64-team football bracket, but, you know, the people who argue for an expansion of the playoff, which is about 99% of the population at this point, are at least in the vein of look at what basketball has. Okay. Like we will not be able to duplicate that level of parity in terms of the teams that are eligible in this bracket, but let's try to get to a point where there is a little bit of, of uncertainty about which teams will advance further, give teams a chance to build their brand or build their name recognition nationally by winning a game or winning two games and getting to what we might call a final four, like, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would love to see football emulate. Everyone would, and everyone would have loved this for a long time. I'd love to see football get to the point where all the power brokers can get on the same page and agree to a format that at least mirrors the unpredictability of the men's bracket and women's bracket. Um, But, you know, as we've seen in the last six or eight months, um, and as we continue to hear from people that we talk to, there's just not, there's just not that, group think right now. I think there's a lot of people going in different directions on individual topics. It feels a lot like, I don't know if you followed it at all, but like it felt a lot like the MLB holdout, you know, like mm-hmm. what little things were holding things up on the players and and the owners. And it feels a lot like that. So I don't, I don't know how close you are to getting any sort of conclusion, but every year this March, we all think as football fans, man, it would be great to get even a semblance of this in football. Okay. So I, I will, I will make a, a, I don't know if it's a correction, but it's a clarification only because I will hear it from uh, Twitter followers if I don't. I don't know if it's 99% of college football fans who want an expansion. The more I, 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 you know, I know Twitter is not real life, but the more I see social media, emails, things like that, thinking maybe it's more like 75%. I, I do think that there's probably about a solid 25% of fans, and maybe it's a few more who, who really think that, you know what? And, and again, I, I, I'm not down with this. I've already done that show. I don't want to get deep into the weeds on this. Uh, so I, I will I will just leave it at that. You don't have to respond. We'll just leave it at that. I think they I think there are probably a few more fans than you give credit for that would like to keep the playoff as is. But let's talk about the idea of 
how we get to something that looks a little bit more like parity. And I, I think in many ways, the middle class of college football has never had more parity. I, I, I think teams 10 to 25 are probably more similar than they were 25 years ago. I think 10 teams uh, 20 through 45 are probably pretty similar. And I think you can probably get upsets of 40 against 15 more so than you would at any other time. But obviously there has become this, you know, small group of elite teams that is, again, like warping our perception of all that sports that, co- that college football is. Uh, my best example is to look at the playoff and say, like, Michigan is a, is, a, is a good college football team. They will have lots of NFL players. They are a, they are a objectively good college football team. But Georgia was so much better that it didn't necessarily matter. So what are we? What's a, so what's the the problem we're trying to solve? I think is to try to disperse the very most elite talent and keep it from clustering. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's pretty stark when you have like, you know, sixty percent of the top hundred players are going to like six schools or something along those lines, and it, it, that's not really that much of an exaggeration. And I wonder if NIL could be something that starts to disperse the talent a little bit. If you start saying, well, if I'm a, one of these super elite players, I, not every, not every buddy on the team can be the highest paid player on the team, right? Like it sort of goes back to a pro kind of thinking. And maybe Georgia and Alabama are still going to have the most elite classes and most elite recruits. But if we can peel a few of these very top rated recruits into other schools, maybe this is what sort of brings down the eliteness of the elite and makes it more competitive for other teams to try to play them. Yeah, and I think that's the million dollar question for the future of college football is how do you do that and what will it look, what will it look like? You know, I always think of the metaphor of how a, of a movie theater makes its, its money. You know, their, their best ROI is on, you know, concessions and on sodas. So NIL is, is the movie ticket. That gets you in the door. But if you're not winning games, you're not sending guys to the NFL, you're not you know, promoting your product in that way, and you're not, for lack of a better metaphor, selling your soda and candy, then I don't know how NIL is really going to move the needle in the long run, in a big picture sense, other than individual pieces, individual players. And if you think an individual player like Cam Newton can, gain, can change the trajectory of a specific program entirely, then yeah, maybe there's a chance that someone shows up and, and reverses history. But I just don't know if NIL itself is going to be what changes it. Well, um, I guess I guess I'm I'm thinking of this because a lot, you know, again, there's it's it's mostly just built on speculation. But we saw Tennessee sign a four or excuse me, get a commitment from a five star quarterback earlier this week, and I you know, I don't have his name in front of me, and I don't, also don't want to mispronounce his name. Um, <laughs> So, but, but that was, I mean, there's a lot of speculation that that it was a, that was an NIL related commitment to which I say, well, first of all, Hey, like, you know, why not? Sure. I mean, I, you know, again, it's hard for me to get worked up about talented football players making money. Like that's sort of like, we see it all the time. Like they, they probably should be making money. Um, So I'm not getting into that side of it. Like, Oh, you know, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I, but I do wonder if like, oh, well, if a few more of these five-star quarterbacks all of a sudden look around and say, you know what, I can go a lot of different places and, 
you know, there's a little extra money here. Maybe I should just go to the place where I can get the best NIL offer. So I don't know. I, I just, we, last year's like talent, uh, two, two, four, seven talent composite, Georgia and Alabama had the two most talented rosters in the history of they that they've been doing that composite. And, and it just seems like that's the thing that, that I'm worried about. I, we just need those top schools to come down a little bit. And how do we peel is, is it NIL or are there other programs maybe that can come up and peel? We just need the, those teams to be those very few programs to have a few of these top hundred, top 50 recruits peeled away from them. Cause I do think those players are really true difference makers. Yeah. You know, I, I worked on this, uh, this men's basketball salary story. We every year do it for men's basketball and football. Um, and, and I spoke to Navigate, who's this research firm that works for a lot of leagues and does a lot of uh, estimates, projections in terms of earnings. And I asked them if they could give me an idea of what things would look like through the decade. And the projections they showed me through the end of the decade, um, even by 2026, Big Ten and SEC are essentially going to double per team annual revenue mm. will be double what you're seeing ACC, Pac-12, Big 12. And by 2029, it's like $100 million for those two and $43 million per team in the ACC. So you can talk about parity all you want. You're not getting parity underneath that model. So to me, maybe the issue or the, or the solution is, um, as, as distasteful as this probably would, would be to a lot of uh, you know, fans of college football who are into the history of it and, and recognize where the sport has come from, maybe the way to find parity is you're never going to get 130-team parity, but maybe you can get 35-team parity. Mm. And yeah, that means your super conference or super conferences split off that decide their own national championship. And yeah, you'll have some teams like Purdue, who's in the Big Ten, that'll always be the equivalent of the Jaguars. And you'll have Nebraska, which is basically the Washington football team in real life and the college level anyway, in terms of their management. So you'll have those teams that are never good anyway, that don't really compete. But maybe you have a team and you, and you find like the NFL that you could have six or seven different national champions in a 10-year span. Um, so not by expanding the parity model to include everybody, but by trying to make parity a smaller subset within a more elite group. Yeah, but that ends up becoming just another professional league. And I'm not necessarily pushing back against that, but because I think that could be where it goes. And I think at that point, if you really do start moving into a super league, you also might be able to get those 35 to 40 schools. And I'm pushing the envelope when I, when I go 35 to 40 in this to agree upon measures that, um, legislate parity because that, again, that's the biggest. The biggest issue with college sports is that there is very little legislative parity, right? I mean, in professional sports, you have draft picks and you have uh, salary caps and you have luxury taxes, and there's all kinds of things that sort of basically legislate parity into uh, into play. Whereas in college football, if you're in Louisiana, you are you are you are advantaged over. If you are in um, Indiana, right, simply because you have more players in your backyard, you know, do they start doing regional recruiting or, or, or make some kind of limits on recruiting as far as like how many stars you get? In other words, like this becomes like a professional. I think there's an opportunity if you cut it down to a true Super League situation to maybe try to bake in with um, approval of the players because you're probably going to go down that road too and actually collectively bargain this stuff of okay now we have to have some measures that will create parity 
Now, of course, to a lot of people are hearing that and thinking that is the doomsday scenario. I please do not make this a, a minor league NFL. I don't want that. I mean, as a, as I, if I could step away and just be a consumer, I don't really want that um, because it takes away, as we discussed earlier, just kind of the, the pageantry and, and the, and the, just the entire appeal of a national sport it becomes not a national sport, but a regional sport conducted nationally. And I don't think that's really a workable model. Like how do you decide a national championship if you're not including the West coast? Like how do you include the, how do you make that a sport that people are watching in LA when, you know, who knows how, look, there's too many permutations. Could they get USC or UCLA, whatever to be in their super league? Who knows? Whatever. Um, I just don't like that as a direction, but if we want parity, uh, you're going to have to take drastic steps. Um, because the way it's going, obviously, um, you're going to see SEC national championships four out of five years, and you're going to see two teams and a four-team or eight-team playoff five out of six years. And you know, I, I I don't know if that's really something that the that the general public wants to continue to experience for college football. Well, you know, you you know the sports history pretty well. I, you know, I I don't consider myself a historian, but I've been I'm old enough and been around long enough to sort of bone up on these things. I mean. The the things that shift the power in college football often are not related to college football, right? I I went off on this rant a couple of weeks ago when Ari Wasserman was on the show. We were were talking playoff. It's like, um, you know, segregation and desegregation had a massive impact on who was good in college football when there was a war. Army became awesome, you know, had its greatest (laughs) in college football, and. You know, when the population in Florida boomed, all of a sudden Florida became a place where you could win college football championships. And again, I often say this on the show, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but we're like, you know, maybe climate change will be the next thing that changes college football's power dynamic, because all of a sudden, you know, the South will be less inhabitable in 25, (laughs) 30 years. Now, again, I'm being somewhat tongue in cheek there, but but I, I say those things to point out that like, it usually are these like sort of large scale sociological, geographical, demographic shifts that end up changing college football more than, oh, we can tweak the rules, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, just think about how the uh, decline of factory jobs and Rust Belt jobs has impacted that region in terms of athletic participation, what sports they're playing, what kind of athletes they're sending to the next level. Um, so there's, you're onto something there. I'm just laughing at the idea of like, you know, Lincoln Riley paying a hundred million dollars for that house. And then in 2019 or 2029, it gets like swept away on the, <laughs> on the, on by the San Andreas fault, just gone. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's right. going to take Arizona is truly on the West coast and, and, right. and, and, you know, then, which is always so funny when they refer to it as being on the West coast. Um, but when, yeah, when, when the West coast is truly Tempe and there are beaches and Tempe, maybe then Arizona state becomes the new you finally wake up. Right. Yeah, maybe um, that's, that's what it will take. It will literally take California falling into the ocean for Arizona state to finally reach its. <laughs> but it's going to take something that drastic to change the direction of college football right now. I mean, it will. I mean, it's going to take something that drastic. And something drastic is not just Nick Saban retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, that power avoided Alabama will be filled by just another SEC team. That, um, it's that, not like, you know, Oregon's really not going to Alabama, But right, somebody else will. But maybe maybe that's when LSU reaches its, its full potential and at some point then becomes goes on an Alabama-like run or something like that. Whatever. Yes. But, but yeah, I, I get your point. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, if if you want that, start spraying those aerosol cans and, <laughs> and like burning your plastic asap. Just start doing that right now and speed up the process of getting the Big Ten back into the national championship picture. Right. Right. This is how we get Nebraska to be uh, to to be elite again. Um, let me uh, actually let me do this. We're going to take a very quick break here in the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking to Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. He is my friend and the great college football writer. We will be back in just a second. We will shift gears. We're going to talk a little bit about Urban Meyer and why it went so wrong uh, in the NFL. Back after this. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality, as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Paul... Urban Meyer. Um, so we knew things were bad because he got fired 10 or 11 games into an NFL season. So clearly it, it was a disaster. And then the athletic this week did a little extra reporting and, and tried to uh, give a, a little more detail on just how big of a disaster it was. Um, so if you want, if y'all want to go read the athletic story, that's fine. I, I don't think there was anything overly shocking in there. Again, he was fired after, 11 or 12 games, we, we kind of knew it was a disaster, but it, it did bring to mind this. I, I'm just, and we're all just looking for theories here. I've talked to some people, you know, and you, you get some ideas. Like how, why did it go so wrong for someone who has been so good in college? Because I, I can't say that like, oh, well, I mean, we all know Urban's got some flaws and character maybe issues here or there those that have been exposed but he has never not won in college so i just wonder like why do you think it was so bad in the nfl um first off i want to say i was reading this athletic story right um like with a bag of popcorn it's just so interested in all these little details mm -hmm. and i was thinking back to urban's entire year and i was like this is george costanza-esque this whole thing is Costanza-esque, like not knowing who Aaron Donald is, uh, what he did in his, in his, that. I don't know if I, I don't necessarily, that, like, whatever yeah. I want to believe, uh, <laughs> what he did in the bar, uh, not flying back with the team, uh, what he said to Trevor Lawrence, it's all just Costanza-esque. Um, it's truly, uh, um, Shakespearean tragedy in terms of just how inept and stupid it was a Costanza-esque tragedy and I, and I just think that the comparison when it popped in my head reading it I thought was hilarious my theory on this is like it's not overly complex because I don't have the brain power to compute it too deep but this is what I think um Urban Meyer was famous or infamous probably more infamous as a college coach at all his stops but specifically at Ohio State and Florida 
at being able to find a pressure point on a guy and just put his thumb down on it. Whether you were a player, and maybe even more so if you were one of his assistants, because he was famously not a very fun guy to work for. And shouldn't be fun, but he was very difficult to work for. Okay. Um, and just to put a little context on that, I remember Urban Meyer was one of the first coaches I heard use this. My job is to coach the coaches. Hmm. And I coached them very, very hard. He, he was one of the first coaches I heard say that. So, yes, I, I only say that as validated. This is not speculation. Urban Meyer was a, was a bitch to work for. Yeah, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and not for everyone. Uh, the reason he could do that to me is that when you're a college coach, especially you're an established college coach, but there are even a lot of guys, and I, and I think this is changing, but there were a lot of guys in the 2010s and maybe even a little bit earlier who followed this model. Um, when you're a college coach and you've got credibility, you've got the carrot and you've got the stick, right? Mm -hmm. The carrot is you play or I bench you and you end your career at, uh, you know, right state and you're, you're in four years, you're doing whatever. And the, you know, the stick is obvious. No, that's the stick. The carrot is you play for Ohio state and you make a million dollars. So he controlled both ends of that equation in mm -hmm. the NFL. I don't know if he covered either one of them. Um, because guys didn't buy in from the start. He didn't have any built-in credibility. We've seen throughout the years for the just the overwhelming majority of college guys, no matter your success from Barry Switzer through Spurrier through even we're seeing with Matt Rule, it's not easy just to walk into a room and just get credibility because you beat Indiana by 60 points three years in a row. It just doesn't work like that. So he tried to run Jacksonville like he ran Ohio State, and everyone there was like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how this works, coach. That's not how this works. Um, so that's my read on it, at least. He only knows one way to motivate, and motivating 18 to 23-year-olds is different than motivating 23 to 35-year-olds. It's just you've got to be able to adapt, and it seems to me like he did not adapt or evolve. I mean, at all. I mean, at all. I also think that the thing that I came away from and I keep going back to is in the NFL at this point, you got to have some, you got to bring some scheme to the table. You got to bring some game planning. You got to bring something, some creative, interesting, thoughtful, insightful football knowledge. And not that Urban Meyer doesn't know football. Of course, Urban Meyer knows football. Um, but I don't know, like, Urban Meyer hasn't been an X and O's guy, X and O's genius for several years he, he was sort of thought of as that right because because the spread offense he was sort of considered one of the um one of the coaches who sort of took it mainstream what he was doing at utah with alex smith seemed new and different at the time and uh so i, I don't want to take all of that away from urban but i do think as urban's career has gone along he became more of managing coaching the coaches recruiting because he's still very good at that, which is another thing I'll get back to in a second. But I think when you step into the NFL level, if you're not bringing something on the scheme, X's and O's game, like if you're not doing that, I don't know how you're getting the players to believe you're making them better. Cause that's what they all want. You hear from, you talk to uh, in players at that level, we'll buy into anything you say. If we think if, if you can show us, you are making us better. Cause when you make us better, I will, that means I will make more money. What means we'll win more and we'll all make more money. And I will be in this league longer. If you can make me better, I will be in this league longer and I will have a, uh, I will make a living longer. And I just wonder if urban 
got away from that. And it was fine in college because he was still the guy procuring the talent and closing the deal and running this massive operation that is an Ohio State football program and bringing a lot of great players in. And he could let the assistants do the scheme stuff. And but in the NFL, like that just doesn't it just doesn't I, I just wonder if that doesn't fly. Yeah, and you're right. It had been a good 15 years since we thought of Urban as this revolutionary offensive coach. I think that kind of died at like 2008, 2009. Maybe a little so, later than that. I mean, listen, they got shut out in the by Clemson in that Fiesta Bowl in the semifinals, what, in 2015 or 16? And yeah. It was, yeah, it was at that point we people kind of realized like, oh, like Urban needs somebody in here who can actually like do offense. And that's when and that was how Ryan Day made his way to um, made his way to Ohio State. And look at what Ohio State's offense looks like now. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, I know why you hire Urban Meyer. It's because he's Urban Meyer. I just I'm curious what the thought process was that led Jacksonville's ownership group to think that he was the right guy in this moment for this team. You know, at Ohio State and at Florida, um, you go three deep at every position. And by the time you get to position the guy number three, because the first two guys have ticked you off so much that you've like run them off the team. Yeah, you might be like, well, we're in trouble when we face Alabama, but you're still going to win the Big Ten because your third guy, because you're recruiting 25, 27 guys a year, is still better than every other guy in that league. But you get to Jacksonville and you're running off John Brown or whoever guys they run off. James Robinson. Uh, yeah. You just yeah. decided we're and not all of a sudden, the best running back. <laughs> right. All of a sudden you're down to a guy that no one wants because you're the Jaguars. You know what I mean? So I just, I don't understand. I mean, his, his reputation and his, his um, higher ability on the college level, even before he went to Jacksonville was very low. And, and now I just, I wonder if as a, as a coach, he'll ever sort of regain the credibility um, you need to be a voice of, of national importance on this topic. I mean, I think he can go back to Fox and do it in college, but this is going to carry around a, a stench on his legacy that at least on the field was like pretty much spotless, except right. for the fact that he left two schools. It was pretty much spotless what he had done on the field, on the field, on the field. And, and you know, the other thing I, I also comes to mind is if you think that you are somehow going to win games in the NFL by being tougher than the other team. And I understand like you have to, coach toughness everywhere at every level of football coaching toughness is something that is in, in all of sports. I would say there has to be some level of coaching toughness, but that's not going to be the thing that separates you in the NFL. All those guys are tough, right? Like there is no way in, 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 the, in, in the year of our Lord, 2022 that the toughest team is who is winning in the NFL. Like it's, yeah, and, and not even the team that is like the most motivated is going to win. Yeah. Maybe that'll work. Like, I don't like I'm speaking kind of out of my ass, but maybe that would work like in December when you're 10 and five and you're playing the Colts who are three and 12, like maybe that motivation comes into play, but urban won games with talent and motivation. He went to mm -hmm. Jacksonville. He had no talent um, and his motivational tricks just didn't work. So I don't, that's just not how you win games by pushing buttons in the NFL. Maybe you win a game, but just a historic flame out. Um, I, I think, I think we also, you know, when we look back at the few blemishes on his record in Ohio State, we always and we kind of try to like wonder, like, why does that happen? Why does Purdue happen? Why does Iowa happen? Why does they why do they get, you know, shut out by Clemson? And maybe those those three things are not the same. So maybe I, I, I shouldn't be comparing them all. But 
And I'd always say, well, listen, it's such a small sample size. Like, yeah, he lost two or three games. We're going to try to extrapolate reasons or connect the dots on two or three day games. But the thing that we that I think most of us tended to do is think like, is Urban like is his personality when you talk about pushing buttons and, and sort of like in the way he motivates does that make a team more, even a really talented team, more susceptible to sort of these letdowns and these big blowups and these like games that are like sort of mysteriously lost because there's too much pressure. There's not enough. Maybe the team had to have a week where they finally felt like they could breathe easy against Purdue and oh no, um, now it just blows up all over. So we always sort of wondered if urban style led to some of those losses. And then after what happened in the NFL and the more we sort of heard about his NFL stint, again, it's hard to use two data points to draw a conclusion. I do find myself thinking, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe we were right. Maybe Urban's team teams were more likely to produce sort of manic episodes because of the way he coached them. Yeah, I mean, they ran hot all the time, right? They're always at you know, five, six, seven RPM, always in the red, mm-hmm. his teams, you mm-hmm. know, and eventually you're going to have a blowout, you know? And I think like, I, I don't even think so much about Iowa, Purdue, those games. I, I think about that Michigan State loss. It was what, 2015, 13, yeah, that, three, whatever it was. Too. Yep, 15 was a great team that kept them out of the playoff. Yeah, like that, that's a moment where you, where you realize that um, like this can blow up in your face. You know, and and it did on that day, and I, that stands out to me more as a failure of leadership, failure of of a of a group to weather like a little bit of, of adversity because they're always so sweaty and hot um, than the Purdue Iowa. As much as those were just tremendous letdowns, that's yeah, those moments clearly to me, you can say in hindsight, that's a byproduct of a coach who pushed, who pushed, who pushed, and at some point, his team and maybe even the entire program said, I, I think we've been pushed enough. We don't have what it takes today. Right. And then on the flip side of that, be able to take that loss, those losses and rebound and the week after losing to Michigan State in a rainstorm, go out and beat the living tar out of uh, Michigan. In other words, like it doesn't last two or three games. It doesn't mean the season goes in the tank. So, again, credit to Urban for always being able to you know, bounce back strong after losses. It also helps to have the best players on the field. So um, do, do you think Urban will be? This is like the the it's been the it's been the thing that I know a lot of uh, guys who do what we do have been talking about a lot, but I haven't had a chance to ask you. Do you think he'll end up back in the college game? Uh, I I don't I don't. I mean, I if it if it happens, I think you got to have a number of years go by at this point, um, based off what happened at Ohio State um, and obviously what happened in Jacksonville. I I think it's it's going to take years, you know, and and in three or four years you know what, I'm immediately going to backtrack as I'm thinking about this. Mm. There's no reason why a team wouldn't hire Urban in six months, right? Or in eight months. Like you what know, program is, you, like someone would do it. Paul, I'll just say this. You know, look at what just happened at Auburn in, yeah. the, last, in the last two months. I mean, if, if they flame out with Harson last year, if there's ever a, a school that you think, oh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just about tired of, of, of getting pushed around. I would yeah, but you would think that he would not like you would think in the vacuum that he would not and look like he has nothing left to prove. And I don't know how much he wants to get back on the sidelines right now, but you would think that he would be done as a coach. Um, but yeah, I mean, you might have one more stint in him somewhere at some place that is willing to. I don't even know. Is it is it a risk to hire Urban 
Is it a black eye? Is it a, is it a PR nightmare? I don't even know if all those things are true. It just seems that way today, based off maybe what we've heard in the last week. Yeah, I completely agree. Like at this point, you know, I, again, I understand he's got blemishes off the field. You can call a lot of his credibility in, in you know, personal credibility into, into question with how he's comported himself. Like I get all of that. And I understand that, like it's, it's stuff like that is, which is why he isn't the USC coach. Right. I think it's the reason why some elite jobs might decide, you know what, not for us. Thank you very much. Um, but I also think that there are some schools that wouldn't necessarily be put off by that. It's not the worst of sins. And I guess we could also now, I don't want to, I'm not going to argue about what the worst of sins are. Um, and I also could see, but I also see his ego being big enough to say, A, I'm not going anywhere where I can't win a national championship. Uh, but also B, I'm, I'm not going out like this. I'm not going out the butt of a joke. Like I, I'm going to go get another program and kick ass and look at my, I, I won 86% of my college games. I'm going to go back to college, win 86% of my games and go to the damn college football hall of fame. And this will be just something that is, you know, this is not going to be in the, in the first two graphs of my obit. That is a motivator for a guy like urban. That is a definitely a motivator. By the way, Ralph murder is the worst of all sins. Um, <laughs> murder. The answer is murder. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is not the the way that a guy wants to go out. You don't want your last your lasting uh, image as a coach to be the equivalent of John Unitas wearing a Chargers jersey. You know, you don't want to be known as the guy who got laughed out of Jacksonville. I mean, Jacksonville. You want you want to be the the punchline of Jacksonville? Mm-hmm. I don't think Urban Meyer wants that. So yeah, that's a motivator for yeah. sure. And by the way, uh, the number eighty six percent was so ridiculous that even I had to go up and double check that you were right. And you, I mean, you're like barely wrong, but you want 85.4% of his games as a college coach, 85.4%. Just say Yeah, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And again, it's the reason why I, I keep going back to like, like how could he have possibly been like this big of a jerk and failure in the NFL and all the things about him? Like, cause you can be a jerk and be, a success and clearly he was able to i don't think his personality has changed that much so what was it about that personality that it was just a complete failure in the nfl but yet he was he's obviously a a charismatic recruiter who who convinces families to say hey listen come play for me and here's why so there is something about this personality as much as it seems very unlikable that does well on the recruiting trail so again it's just the two things his success in college and his failure in the NFL. I know that there are lots of coaches who have done that, but it's, it was so dramatic and it just makes me wonder like what happened? Like, why did the cult of personality work in college, but it didn't work in, in the NFL. And again, I don't know if we'll ever get a good answer, but the reason why I wanted to have you on is to talk about possible answers. So there's that. We, we, we definitely supplied answers that could be right. They could also be wrong. But uh, that's a possibility. We could be right. They could also be wrong. Um, I was going to talk to you about quarterback battles and things along those lines, but you know what? I think we've done enough here today. I think we've, uh, we've, 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 we've covered enough ground here on the podcast. Paul, I very much appreciate uh, you joining me as always. And hopefully um, I think it's about time that we, we actually got together in our neighborhood relatively soon. I think usually once a year, we actually see each other in our neighborhood. (sighs) We live about a half away from each other. Yeah, that's plan on doing something in April after the 
after the final four. That sounds How about that. That sounds great. It'll be spring. It'll be nice. We can maybe go for a walk again. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. A beautiful walk um, uh, along Third Avenue towards Bay Ridge sounds just lovely. <laughs> Underneath the 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 shade, the the shadow cast by uh, the uh, you know BQE or two seventy two eighty seven, whatever it is over there. That sounds great. Thank you, Paul. All right, thanks, Ralph. And now three and out, and it'll be a bit of a hurry up. First down, because I'm always focused on college football, first and foremost, I can't help watching Liberty's Malik Willis challenging to be the first quarterback off the board in the NFL draft and thinking, would Gus Malzahn still be at Auburn if Willis had won the starting job there and not transferred out? Now, to be fair, lots happens over the course of five years. Willis probably did a lot of developing on and off the field once he got away from Auburn. Auburn might not have seen more than glimpses of the player Willis has become, but it's hard not to consider the what ifs. Second down, I love football, but when I cover college basketball, as I did last week, I get a yearly reminder that the coaches are generally, generally far more chill and willing to engage with thoughtful answers than their colleagues on the football side who tend to take things a little too seriously. Third down, one of the most interesting parts of NIL is how it could start revealing the divide between the haves and the have-nots within Power 5 conferences. Just think of the war of words, shall we put it, however you want to call it, the barbs thrown back and forth between Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss and Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher. To allude back to Paul's Super League theory that we talked about during the interview, the next significant battle in college sports will be fought intra-conference. When the Alabamas and Ohio States look across the table at the Indianas and Mississippi States and say, why should we listen to you? Why should you make as much as us? That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.